Chapter ninety eight of the House by the Churchyard. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Brandon. The House by the Churchyard by Joseph Sheraton Lafano. Chapter ninety eight in which charles archer puts himself upon the country the excitement was high in chapel is it when the news reached that a true bill was found against charles archer for the murderer of barnabas sturk everywhere indeed the case was watched with uncommon interest and when the decisive day arrived and the old judge furrowed yellow and cross mounted the bench and the jury were called over and the challenges began and the grim gentlemanlike person with the white hair and his right arm in a black silk sling whispering to his attorney and now and again penciling with his left hand a line to his counsel with that indescribable air of confidence and almost defiance pleaded to the indictment not guilty and the dreadful business of the day began the court was crowded as it seldom had been before a short clear horrible statement unfolded the case for the crown then the dying deposition of sturk was put in evidence then irons the clerk was put up and told his tale doggedly and distinctly and was not to be shaken no it was not true that he had ever been confined in a madhouse he had never had delirium tremens he had never heard that his wife thought him mad yes it was true he had pledged silver of his masters at the pied horse at newmarket he knew it was a felony but it was the prisoner who put it into his head and encouraged him to do it yes he would swear to that he had several times spoken to lord de Norn, when passing under the name of mervyn on the subject of his father being wronged he never had any promise from my lord in case he should fix the guilt of that murder on some other than his father our friend captain clough was called and delivered his evidence in a somewhat bluff and peremptory but on the whole effective way charles nutter after some whispered consultation was also called and related what we have heard yes he had been arrested for the murder of dr sturk and now stood out on bail to answer that charge then followed some circumstances one of which the discovery of a piece of what was presumed to be the weapon with which the murder was perpetrated i have already mentioned then came some evidence curious but quite clear to show that the charles archer who had died at florence was not the charles archer who had murdered beauclerk but a gentleman who had served in the army and had afterwards been for two years in italy in the employment of a london firm who dealt in works of art and was actually resident in italy at the time when the newmarket murder occurred and that the attempt to represent him as the person who had given evidence against the late lord de norne was an elaborate and cunning contrivance of the prisoner at the bar then came 
the medical evidence pell was examined and delivered only half a dozen learned sentences toole more at length made a damaging comparison of the fragment of iron already mentioned and the outline of the fractures in the deceased man's head and dillon was questioned generally and was not cross-examined then came the defence the points were that stirk was restored to speech by the determined interposition of the prisoner at the bar an unlikely thing if he was ruining himself thereby that stirk's brain had been shattered and not cleared from hallucinations before he died that having uttered the monstrous dream in all its parts incredible which was the sole foundation of the indictment against that every way respectable and eminent gentleman who stood there the clerk irons having heard something of it had conceived the plan of swearing to the same story for the manifest purpose of securing thereby the favour of the young lord de norne with whom he had been in conference upon this very subject without ever once having hinted a syllable against mr paul dangerfield until after dr stirk's dream had been divulged and the idea of fixing the guilt of beauclerk's murder upon that gentleman of wealth family and station occurred to his intriguing and unscrupulous mind mr dangerfield in the dock nodded sometimes or sneered or smirked with hollow cheeks or shook his head in unison with the passing sentiment of the speaker directing through that hot atmosphere now darkening into twilight a quick glance from time to time upon the aspect of the jury the weather gauge of his fate but altogether with a manly sarcastic and at times a somewhat offended air as though he should say tis somewhat too good a jest that i paul dangerfield esq a man of fashion with my known character and worth nigh two hundred thousand pounds sterling should stand here charged with murdering a miserable chapel is a doctor the minutes had stolen away the judge read his notes by candlelight and charged with dry and cranky emphasis dead against that man of integrity fashion and guineas and did not appear a bit disturbed at the idea of hanging him when the jury went in he had some soup upon the bench and sipped it with great noise mr dangerfield shook hands with his counsel and smirked and whispered many people there felt queer and grew pale in the suspense and the general gaze was fixed upon the prisoner with a coarse curiosity of which he seemed resolutely unconscious and five minutes passed by and a minute or two more it seemed a very long time the minute hands of the watches hardly got on at all and then the door of the jury-room opened and the gentlemen came stumbling in taking off their hats and silence was called there was no need and the foreman with a very pale and frightened face handed down the paper and the simple message sounded through the court guilty and mr dangerfield bowed and lifted up a white smiling countenance all over shining now with a slight moisture then there was some whispering among the conductors of the prosecution 
and the leader stood up to say that in consequence of a communication from the law officers in england where the prisoner was to be arraigned on a capital indictment involving serious consequences to others for the murder he meant of mr beauclerk the crown wished that he should stand over for judgment until certain steps in that case had been taken at the other side then the court inquired whether they had considered so-and-so and the leader explained and satisfied his lordship who made an order accordingly and mr dangerfield made a low bow with a smirk to his lordship and a nod with the same to his counsel and he turned and the turnkey and darkness received him mr dangerfield or shall we say the villain charles archer with characteristic promptitude and coolness availed himself of the interval to try every influence he could once have set in motion and as it were to gather his strength for a mighty tussle with the king of terrors when his pale fingers should tap at his cell door i have seen two of his letters written with consummate plausibility and adroitness and which have given me altogether a very high idea of his powers for they were all received with a terrifying coldness or with absolute silence there was no reasoning against an intuition every human being felt that the verdict was true and that the judgment when it came would be right and recoiled from the smiling gentleman over whose white head the hempen circle hung like a diabolical glory dangerfield who had something of the napoleonic faculty of never making pictures to himself saw this fact in its literality and acquiesced in it he was a great favor with the jailer whom so long as he had the command of his money he had treated with a frank and convivial magnificence and who often sat up to one o'clock with him and enjoyed his stories prodigiously for the sarcastic man of the world lost none of his amusing qualities and the fatigues of his barren correspondence ended slept and eat and drank pretty much as usual this great despair who carried the keys at his girdle did not often get so well a pilgrim into his castle and was secretly flattered by his familiarity and cheered by his devilish gaiety and was quite willing to make rules bend a little and the place as pleasant as possible to his distinguished guest and give him in fact all his heart could desire except a chance of escape i've one move left nothing very excellent but sometimes you know a scurvy card enough will win the trick between you and me my good friend i have a thing to tell that will oblige my lord de norne very much to hear my lord townsend will want his vote he means to prove his peerage immediately and he may give a poor devil a lift you see eh so next day there came my lord de norne and a magistrate not mr low mr dangerfield professed a contempt for him and preferred any other so it was mr armstrong this time and that is all i know of him 
lord dunoran was more pale than usual indeed he felt like to faint on coming into the presence of the man who had made his life so indescribably miserable and throughout the interview he scarcely spoke six sentences and not one word of reproach the villain was down it was enough mr dangerfield was perhaps a little excited he talked more volubly than usual and once or twice there came a little flush over his pallid forehead and temples but on the whole he was very much the same brisk sardonic talker and polite gentleman whom mr mervyn had so often discoursed with in chapel is it on this occasion his narrative ran on uninterruptedly and easily but full of horrors like a satanic reverie upon my honour sir said paul dangerfield with his head erect i bear mr low no ill-will he is you'll excuse me a thief-catcher by nature he can't help it he thinks he works from duty public spirit and other fine influences i know it is simply from an irrepressible instinct i do assure you i never yet bore any man the least ill-will i've had to remove two or three not because i hated them i did not care a button for any but because their existence was incompatible with my safety which sir is the first thing to me as yours is to you human laws we respect <laughs> you and i because they subserve our convenience and just so long when they tend to our destruction tis of course another thing this it must be allowed was frank enough there was no bargain here and whatever mr dangerfield's plan might have been it certainly did not involve making terms with lord de norn beforehand or palliating or disguising what he had done so on he went i believe in luck sir and there's the sum of my creed i was wrong in taking that money from beauclerk when i did was in the midst of a dismal run of ill fortune there was nothing unfair in taking it though the man was a cheat it was not really his and no one could tell to whom it belonged twas no more his because i had found it in his pocket than if i had found it in a barrel on the high seas i killed him to prevent his killing me precisely the same motive though in your case neither so reasonable nor so justifiable as that on which in the name of justice which means only the collective selfishness of my fellow-creatures you design in cool blood to put me publicly to death tis only that you gentlemen think it contributes to your safety that's the spirit of human laws i applaud and i adopt it in my own case pray sir to mr armstrong do me the honour to try this snuff tis real french rapie but sir though i have had to do these things which you or any other man of nerve would do with a sufficient motive i never hurt any man without a necessity for it my money i've made fairly though in great measure by play and no man can say i ever promised that which i did not perform 
tis quite true i killed beauclerk in the manner described by irons that was put upon me and i could not help it i did right tis also true i killed that scoundrel glasscock as irons related shortly after being in trouble about money and in danger of arrest i went abroad and changed my name and disguised my person at florence i was surprised to find a letter directed to charles archer you may suppose it was not agreeable but of course i would not claim it and it went after all to him for whom it was intended there was actually there a mr charles archer dying of a decline three respectable english residents had made his acquaintance knowing nothing of him but that he was a sick countryman when i learned all about it i too got an introduction to him and when he died i prevailed with one of them to send a note signed by himself and two more to the london lawyer who was pursuing me simply stating that charles archer had died in florence to their knowledge they having seen him during his last illness and attended his funeral i told them that he had begged me to see this done as family affairs made it necessary twas as well to use the event and they did it without difficulty i do not know how the obituary announcement got into the newspapers it was not my doing and naming him as the evidence in the prosecution of my lord de norne was a great risk and challenged contradiction but none came sir philip drayton was one of the signatures and it satisfied the attorney when i came to chapel is it though i soon found that the devil had not done with me and that i was like to have some more unpleasant work on my hands i did not know that irons was above ground nor he either that i was living we had wandered far enough asunder in the interval to make the chances very many we should never meet again yet here we met and i knew him and he me but he's a nervous man and whimsical he was afraid of me and never used his secret to force money from me still it was not pleasant i did not know but that if i went away he might tell it i weighed the matter tis true i thought there might have come a necessity to deal with him but i would not engage in anything of the sort without an absolute necessity but dr stirk was different a bull-headed conceited fool i thought i remembered his face at newmarket and changed as it was i was right and learned all about him from irons i saw his mind was at work on me though he could not find me out and i could not well know what course a man like that might take or how much he might have seen or remembered that was not pleasant either i had taken a whim to marry there's no need to mention names but i supposed i should have met no difficulty with the lady relying on my wealth had i married i should have left the country however it was not to be it might have been well for all had i never thought of it for i'm a man who when he once places an object before him will not give it up without trying i can wait as well as strike 
and know what's to be got by one and t'other well what i've once proposed to myself i don't forego and that helped to hold me where i was the nature of the beast stirk and his circumstances were dangerous was necessary for my safety to make away with him i tried it by several ways i made a quarrel between him and tool but somehow it never came to a duel and a worse one between him and nutter but that too failed to come to a fight it was to be sir and my time had come what i long suspected arrived and he told me in his own study he knew me and wanted money the money didn't matter of that i could spare abundance though tis the nature of such attacks to swell to confiscation but the man who gets a sixpence from me on such terms is a tyrant and your master and i can't brook slavery i owed the fellow no ill will upon my honour as a gentleman i forgive him as i hope he has forgiven me it was all fair he should try we can't help our instincts there's something wolfish in us all i was vexed at his damned folly though and sorry to have put him out of the way however i saw i must be rid of him there was no immediate hurry i could afford to wait a little i thought he would walk home on the night i met him he had gone into town in colonel strafford's carriage it returned early in the afternoon without him i knew his habits he dined at keating's ordinary at four o'clock and mercer whom he had to speak with would not see him on his bill of exchange business in his counting-house stirk told me so and he must wait till half-past five at his lodgings what he had to say was satisfactory and i allowed five minutes for that then he might come home in a coach but he was a close-fisted fellow and loved a shilling so it was probable he would walk his usual path was by the starfort and through the thorn woods between that and the magazine so i met him i said i was for town and asked him how he had fared in his business and turned with him walking slowly as though to hear i had that loaded whalebone in my pocket and my sword but no pistol it was not the place for firearms the noise would have made an alarm so i turned sharp upon him and felled him he knew by an intuition what was about to happen for as the blow fell he yelled murder that damned fellow nutter in the wood at our right scarce a hundred yards away hallowed an answer i had but time to strike him two blows on the top of his head that might have killed an ox i felt the metal sink at the second in his skull and would have pinked him through with my sword but the fellow was close on me and i thought i knew the voice for nutters i stole through the bushes swiftly and got along into the hollow under the magazine and thence on there was a slight fog upon the park and i met no one i got across the park wall over the quarry and so down by the stream at coils and on to the road near my house no one was in sight so i walked down to chapel is it to show myself 
near the village tree i met dr tool i asked him if nutter was in the club and he said no nor at home he believed for his boy had seen him more than half an hour ago leave his hall door dressed for the road so i made as if disappointed and turned back again assured that nutter was the man i was not easy for i could not be sure that stirk was dead had i been allowed a second or two more i'd have made sure work of it still i was nearly sure i could not go back now and finish the business i could not say whether he lay there any longer and if he did how many men nutter might have about him by this time so sir the cast was made i could not mend it and must abide my fortune be it good or ill not a servant saw me go out or return i came in quietly and went into my bedroom and lighted a candle twas a blunder a blot but a thousand to one it was not hit i washed my hands there was some blood on the whalebone and on my fingers i rolled the loaded whalebone up in a red handkerchief and locked it in my chest of drawers designing to destroy it which i did so soon as the servants were in bed and then i felt a chill and a slight shiver twas only that i was an older man i was cool enough but a strain on the mind was more to me then than twenty years before so i drank a dram and i heard a noise outside my window twas then that stupid dog clough saw me as he swears well next day stirk was brought home nutter was gone and the suspicion attached to him that was well but though pell pronounced that he must die without recovering consciousness and that the trepan would kill him instantaneously i had a profound misgiving that he might recover speech and recollection i wrote as exact a statement of the case to my london physician a very great man as i could collect and had his answer which agreed exactly with dr pell's twas agreed on all hands that trepan would be certain death days weeks or months it mattered not what the interval no returning glimmer of memory could light his deathbed still sir i presaged evil he was so long about dying i'm telling you everything you see i offered irons what would have been a fortune to him he was attending occasionally in stirk's sick-room and assisting in dressing his wounds to watch his opportunity and smother him with a wet handkerchief i would have done it myself afterwards on the sole opportunity that offered had i not been interrupted i engaged with mrs stirk's approval dr dillon i promised him five hundred guineas to trepan him that young villain i could prove led alderman sherlock to death to please the alderman's young wife who'd have thought the needy profligate would have hesitated to plunge his trepan into the brain of a dying man a corpse you may say already for five hundred guineas i was growing feverish under the protracted suspense i was haunted by the apprehension of sirk's recovering his consciousness and speech in which case i should have been reduced to my present rueful situation and i was resolved 
to end that cursed uncertainty when i thought dillon had forgot his appointment in his swinish vices i turned my mind another way i resolved to leave stirk to nature and clench the case against nutter by evidence i would have compelled irons to swear as it turned out that would have been the better way had stirk died without speaking and nutter hanged for his death the question could have opened no more and irons would have been nailed to my interest i viewed the problem every way i saw the danger from the first and provided many expedients which one after the other fortune frustrated i can't confidently say even now that it would have been wiser to leave stirk to die as the doctors said he must i had a foreboding in spite of all they could say he would wake up before he died and denounce me if twas a mistake twas a fated one and i could not help it so sir you see i have nothing to blame myself for though all has broken down i guess when i heard the sound at the hall door of my house that stirk or irons had spoken and that they were come to take me had i broken through them i might have made my escape it was long odds against me but still i had a chance that's all and the matter affecting my lord de noran's innocence i'm ready to swear if it can serve his son having been the undesigned cause of some misfortunes to you my lord in my lifetime lord de noran said nothing he only bowed his head so dangerfield when his statement respecting the murder of beauclerk had been placed clearly in writing made oath of its truth and immediately when this was over he had while they were preparing the statement been walking up and down his flagged chamber he grew all on a sudden weak and then very flushed and they thought he was about to take a fit but speedily he recovered himself and in five minutes time was much as he had been at the commencement after my lord and mr armstrong went away he had the jailer with him and seemed very sanguine about getting his pardon and was very brisk and chatty and said he'd prepared his petition in the morning and got in large paper for drafting it on and said i suppose at the close of this commission they will bring me up for judgment that will be the day after tomorrow and i must have my petition ready and he talked away like a man who had got a care off his mind and is in high spirits and when grinning beetle-browed giant despair took his hand and wished him luck at parting he stopped him laying his white hand upon his herculean arm and said he i've a point to urge they don't suspect i'm sure of my liberty what do you think of that eh and he laughed and when i get away what do you say to leaving this place and coming after me upon my life you must sir i like you and if you don't rot me but i'll come and take you away myself so they parted in a sprightly genial way and in the morning the turnkey called the jailer up at an unseasonable hour and told him that mr dangerfield was dead the jailer lay in the passage outside the prisoner's cell 
with his bed across the door which was locked and visited him at certain intervals the first time he went in there was nothing remarkable it was but half an hour after the jailer had left mr dangerfield or so he chose to be called was dozing very quietly in his bed and just opened his eyes and nodded on awaking as though he would say here i am but did not speak when three hours later the officer entered having lighted his candle at the lamp he instantly recoiled the room felt so queer said he i thought i'd have fainted and i drew back i tried it again a bit further in and twas worse and the candle almost went out twas as if the devil was there i drew back quick and i called the prisoner but no word was there then i locked the door and called michael and when he came we called the prisoner again but to no purpose then we opened the door and i made a rush and smashed the glass of the window to let in air we had to wait outside a good while before we could venture in and when we did there he was lying like a man asleep in his bed with his nightcap on and his hand under his cheek and he smiling down on the flags very sly like a man who has won something cleverly he was dead and his limbs cold by this time there was an inquest mr dangerfield looked very composed in death says an old letter and he lay very like sleep in his bed his fingers under his cheek and temple with the countenance turned a little downward as if looking upon something on the floor with an ironical smile so that the ineffaceable lines of sarcasm i suppose were traceable upon that jaundiced mask some said it was a heart disease and others an exhalation from the prison floor he was dead that was all the jury could say for certain and they found twas by a visitation of god the jailer being a superstitious fellow was plaguily nervous about mr dangerfield's valediction and took clerical advice upon it and for several months after became a very serious and ascetic character and i do believe that the words were spoken in reality with that sinister jocularity in which his wits sported like churchyard meteors when crimes and horrors were most in his mind the niece of this jailer said she well remembered her uncle when a very old man three years before the rebellion relating that mr dangerfield came by his death in consequence of some charcoal in a warming pan he had prevailed on him to allow him for his bed he having complained of cold he got it with a design to make away with himself and it was forgotten in the room he placed it under the bed and waited until the first call of the turnkey was over and then he stuffed his cert out into the flue of the small fireplace which afforded the only ventilation of his cell and so was smothered it was not till the winter following that the jailer discovered on lighting a fire there that the chimney was stopped 
he had a misgiving about the charcoal before and now he was certain of course he said nothing about his suspicions at first nor of his discovery afterwards so sometimes in my musings when i hear of clever young fellows taking to wild courses and audaciously rushing where good christians pray they may not be led into temptation there rises before me with towering forehead and scoffing face a white image smoking his pipe grimly by a plutonic fire and i remember the words of the son of sirach the knowledge of wickedness is not wisdom neither at any time the counsel of sinners prudence mr irons of course left chapel is it he took with him the hundred guineas which mr dangerfield had given him as also it was said a handsome addition made to that fund by open-handed dr walsingham but somehow being much pressed for time he forgot good mistress irons who remained behind and let lodgings pretty much as usual and never heard from that time forth anything very distinct about him and latterly it was thought was on the whole afraid rather than desirous of his turning up again dr toole indeed related in his own fashion at the phoenix some years later a rumour which however may have turned out to be no better than smoke news of zekiel by jove the prophet was found sir with a friend in the neighbourhood of hounslow with a brace of pistols a mask a handful of slugs and a powder-horn in his pocket which he first gave to a constable and then made his compliments to a justice of the peace who gave him and his friend a note of commendation to my lord chief justice and his lordship took such a fancy to both that by george he sent them in a procession in his best one-horse coach with a guard of honour and a chaplain a high sheriff dutifully attending through the city where by the king's commands they were invested with the grand collar of the order of the hempen cravat sir and with such an attention to their comfort they were not required to descend from their carriage by george and when it drove away they remained in an easy genteel posture with their hands behind their backs in a sort of an ecstasy and showed their good humour by dancing a reel together with singular lightness and agility and keeping it up till they were both out of breath when they remained quiet for about a half an hour to cool and then went off to pay their respects to the president of the college of surgeons and so forth but i don't think irons had pluck for a highwayman and i can't therefore altogether believe the story we all know aunt rebecca pretty well by this time and looking back upon her rigorous treatment of puddock recorded in past chapters of this tale i think i can now refer it all to its true source she was queer quarrelsome and sometimes nearly intolerable but she was generous and off-handed and made a settlement reserving only a life interest and nearly all afterwards to puttock but in a marriage settlement said the attorney so they called themselves in those days it is usual 
and here his tone became so gentle that i can't say positively what he uttered oh uh that she said uh well you can speak to lieutenant puddock if you wish i only say for myself a life estate lieutenant puddock can deal with the remainder as he pleases and aunt rebecca actually blushed a pretty little pink blush i believe she did not think there was much practical utility in the attorney's suggestion and if an angel in her hearing had said of her what he once said of sarah she would not have laughed indeed but i think she would have shaken her head she was twenty years and upwards his senior but i don't know which survived the other for in this life the battle is not always to the strong their wedding was a very quiet affair and the talk of the village was soon directed from it to the approaching splendours of the union of miss gertrude and my lord de norin End of chapter 98 Recording by John Brandon